Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I am your host, Massimo Pilucci, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Gelev. Julia, what are we going to talk about today? Well, Massimo, today we're going to turn a rational eye on the world of standardized testing. Ooh. In particular, we're going to look at the uh, intelligence quotient test, the IQ test, and Myers-Briggs and other sort of personality type testing. Ooh. Okay, yeah. this is so, going to be Massimo, controversial. Have you taken the Myers-Briggs test? Do you know what your personality type is? You know what? At some point or another, I had taken both the Myers-Briggs and the Big Five test, um, but I have no recollection whatsoever of what personality type I I could am. probably typecast you. Uh, I could probably sure you assign can. you to their categories. Yeah, you know. but that is, the, that is exactly the problem, right? That is, you know, how reliable would that casting be? Uh, have you taken either one of these tests? I, I took the Myers-Briggs test a couple times, mm-hmm. uh, once in high school and then once, I think, in college or shortly after. Mm-hmm. And I think I recall myself the last time I took it being an INTP, uh-huh. so introverted, um, introverted. Uh, intuitive, or intuiting, thinking, and perceiving. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and I, I, don't, I don't remember, I was probably similar the first time it, I took it too, but, you know, one of the many problems with this test, which I, you know, I'm sure we'll get into, um, is that it's all self-reported or self, you know, it's self-perception um, at best, right? This yeah. is how you perceive yourself to be. And in my case, I I remember noticing as I was taking the test um, that it was it was worse than that for me. It wasn't even just self-perception; it was self-aspiration. So it was I was taking it in terms of how I wanted to you see myself, like to and not right. in terms of how I actually right. did see myself, which in itself would not be a very reliable right. metric. I actually had a similar experience when I. By the way, I should say that I didn't. I didn't. I never took these tests in any formal setting. I always. I, I took them a couple of times on you know basically online versions, simplified versions. Right. Uh, just for, out of curiosity, uh, that that's one of the things that is b- uh, very different, by the way, between sort of the um, the American culture use of these tests and the U- European uh, setting. In Europe, there is almost no use of these kinds of tests, as far as I could tell. Uh, I never actually encountered any of these tests, um, especially the personality test. The, the IQ test, of course, originated in Europe. Uh, it was invented by uh, Alfred Binet, who was a, a Frenchman. Mm-hmm. Um, but the personality tests are really something that is very popular in the United States. In fact, millions of people take them um, every year for a variety of purposes. But anyway, the, the point I was making was that, yes, I remember having exactly that sort of subjective experience that you just um, uh, mentioned. That is, wait, I'm responding the way I would like to be perceived or I would like right. to be. But not ne- yeah. that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the way I actually am. Yeah. In fact, now I'm just remembering a little more. When I took it in high school, I was an extrovert, or rather the test said I was an extrovert, but I was actually much more introverted in high school than I am now. <laughs> um, and the reason that I came out as an extrovert was that at the time in high school, I thought that extroverts were better than introverts, and I, I wanted to be an extrovert. Right. And so all of the questions like, do you feel comfortable in large conversations with strangers at parties? I would say yes, because I really wanted to be right. the kind of person who could have large you know, conversations with strangers and be comfortable. And of course, um, now you can. So, you know, it worked. <laughs> I, I can, although, you know, I still... 
I still get sort of drained by being mm-hmm. in uh, in context with a lot of people that I don't know where I have to be sort of socially on yeah. for extended periods of time. Right. Um, so that I think that still sort of makes me at, at, at the core an introvert. Yeah. Well, the, what picked my curiosity originally about um, uh, this, this topic was actually a, a recent article about the Myers-Briggs personality test in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I didn't know much about the history of this thing, but it turns out that um, the history is sort of almost pseudoscientific. Uh, the original idea of, of the test, uh, which was um, you know, that, that put together originally by, by Catherine Briggs and her daughter Isabel Myers, um, uh, we're talking about the early part of the 20th century. The original idea is that the, the two women in question were um, highly influenced by the psychology of Carl Jung, and who was, of course, a uh, initially a protege of, of Freud, and then, you know, just like everybody else who was a protege of Freud, sort of fell out with the master. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the thing is that Jung. So as soon as I studied, as I as I read Jung, the 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 baloney detector went to a fairly high level, uh, because Jung is famous for all sorts of um, uh, interesting things. Uh, one is his idea of uh, sort of um, unconscious collective archetypes. Um, that all humanity shares, for which, of course, there is no not a shred of empirical evidence. Uh, he's also famous for his antipathy uh, toward quantification and statistical analysis. He thought that statist- with, with statistics, you can lie and, and pretty much tell any story you, you want. And, you know, there is a kernel of truth there, uh, of course. But, but, that's, but <laughs> that's if you're trying to tell any exactly. story you want with statistics, as exactly. opposed to if you're trying to discover the truth. Exactly. And, 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 and very, very that, brief tangential quote, Massimo. Yeah. Have you ever heard that great line from, a, what was his name? Uh, H. Chesterton, I think was his name. Um, he was referring to someone, I don't remember who, and he said, he uses statistics the way a drunkard uses a lamppost for support, <laughs> not for illumination. Yes, exactly. So yes, if that's your goal, you can use statistics to lie. That's, it doesn't mean that you can figure out the truth without statistics. That's exactly right. And instead, Jung was very much into sort of anecdotal evidence and, you know, personal interpretation of, you know, stories, which is, of course, the whole problem with psychoanalysis more broadly, and what we talked about in, in, other, in other episodes. Uh, that is one of the reasons why Karl Popper famously thought of psychoanalysis as a pseudoscience, um, as, you know, as in technically being unfalsifiable, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, Jung was also very much into sort of extraterrestrial visitations. He wrote a book about UFOs. Um, it was in, uh, about, you know, it was interested in astrology. So it's not exactly, so whenever his name comes to my, to, to, into the conversation, he's not exactly a, 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 a you know, um, a flag for rationality and uh, evidence-based claims. So the fact that the, the, uh, Briggs-Myers test originated from uh, the insights of Jung already should be a pretty good reason f- to be at least very careful. Uh, but yeah, also- do you remember, Massimo, in our episode on Freud, mm-hmm. we were talking about uh, like how to weigh the evidence for or against Freud's theories. Right. And I said, you know, it al- almost seems silly to be working too hard to figure out, you know, what evidence there is for or against them if we know that what caused the theories in the first place was not a process that tends... Uh, was not the sort of process that tends to produce true theories. You know, it was just yes. him making up something that he thought sounded cool. I mean, to be a little uncharitable, but like, you know. Yeah, it's, it was a good story. It was an interesting story, but that doesn't make it anywhere remotely a good basis for uh, for a scientific analysis of anything. Yeah. Now, that said, Although- however, there is, there is another side to the sort of to wanting to be a little bit more charitable. Uh, just for a moment, because then we'll go back to being uncharitable, I suppose, or being critical, <laughs> at least. Um, mm-hmm. But wanting to be a little bit more uh, charitable about these, uh, in particular, the Myers-Briggs test. 
So there is another possibility there, right? Uh, there are situations like, um, I don't know, acupuncture, for instance, which is still a highly debated technique and all that. But there is increasing evidence that it does have some effects, certainly nothing like what their supporters actually claim. You know, it doesn't cure cancer or anything like that. But it, uh, it seems to be, in fact, um, somewhat useful um, and beyond the placebo effect. But even if it is, you know, the claim is still debatable. But even if it is, the point is definitely that it's not effective because of the theory. Uh, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the meridians of energy that go through your bodies, it's all a lot of baloney. But that doesn't mean that the practice itself uh, doesn't work. Like, for instance, another cl- clear example, even clearer example, I think, is the efficacy of certain uh, herbal remedies. Uh, it's an efficacy that has nothing to do with folk theories of why these things work. Uh, but, you know, people have tried a bunch of things and uh, and they presumably retained by trial and error those that worked. And therefore, it's no surprise that something may, in fact, work today, even though the theory from which it originated was was a lot of nonsense. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately for the Myers-Briggs thing, this, we don't even know if that is true because apparently there is very little, if any, empirical evidence uh, supporting the reliability of the tests. I mean, this this stuff was made up out of whole cloth to begin with, and it doesn't seem to be much of a research, unlike the case for other, um, uh, you know, personality tests. That really doesn't seem to be much of a of a, of a reason uh, for keep using them. It's actually very popular. It's, it's the second or third most popular uh, test. Uh, a personality test used in the United States. The, the statistics are pretty impressive, about 10,000 companies, uh, 2,500 colleges or universities, and a couple of hundred governmental agencies use it in the United States, which makes for a handy, nice nice profit of about $20 million a year for the company that produces mm. the test, the C- CPP. Uh, and to me, that is the, the really interesting stuff. I mean, actual decisions in the real world are being made um, by people who think they're making those decisions based on evidence, because, you know, after all, it's a test and, you know, it's measuring something, presumably. Uh, and yet, in fact, there is neither theoretical nor, nor much of an empirical basis for, for what's going on with the Myers-Briggs. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I, I think that we need to look harder at what kind of a thing is the Myers-Briggs test before we can ask whether it has been or could be validated. Because it seems like a different category of thing. It seems to belong to a different category than things like acupuncture. So yes. acupuncture is is a method that is trying to produce an effect. And it also has a theory, a causal explanation of why that effect is supposed to occur. Right. Um, and then there are other the- scientific theories that are supposedly providing you know causal explanations of why something happens. And then the Myers-Briggs is sort of more a descriptive um, uh, construct. So it would... I mean, it's it's a way of just classifying people according to these various attributes. So in what ways could it be wrong? Well, um, that's an interesting question. Actually, um, maybe one way to, to um, tackle that question is to look at some of the other uh, personality tests that have been that are, they're, they're widely used. The, the, one of the other big ones is the, the so-called big five personality traits. Um, yeah, tell me about that right? one because I've heard about it and I can't remember what it so, so that one is um, um, again, as you as you were saying, sort of classifies uh, people according to a certain number of, of sort of dimensions. In this case, five personality traits. These traits are openness, uh, conscientiousness, ex- extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Mm-hmm. And um, now, it does suffer from some of the same problems that you were mentioning earlier or earlier for the Myers Briggs, which are which are common to pretty much any. Uh, personality test, which is, 
you know, the test is essentially based on people subjectively answering a, a set of, of questions about themselves, and therefore there is the the, the issue that, that the people can be could be biased either consciously or unconsciously. First of all, since other people know that these tests are being used for you know placement in in, uh, uh, in the workplace or in or in colleges or or in a uh, uh, governmental agency, clearly people mm -hmm. want to come across better, <laughs> as, as good as, right. as you know, as well as possible. So obviously there is a, there is a certain inherent bias. Now psychologists are aware of this thing, of course, and there's sort of there are internal cross validations, for instance, that the five factor uh, tests have uh, to sort of try to counter as much as possible for these things. But it's always a a, 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 a potential problem. So that's one way the test could be wrong then, right? It could be wrong in that it's claiming that the scores on this test are an accurate representation of that person's personality, when in right. fact that's not the case because of these self-report uh, issues. Right. Yes, that's that's definitely one way. Uh, now, there is, of course, a more fundamental issue, which I think is where you were going uh, a minute ago, and uh, and that is, but even if the tests are accurate, what exactly is it that they're measuring? <laughs> So the, the the problem uh, is is that in the 1960s, uh, particularly 50s and 60s, um, uh, a lot of psychologists were you know interested in sort of a behavioristic approach to uh, to human behavior, <laughs> and therefore mm -hmm. they tended to to emphasize the um, effects of the environmental stimuli as opposed to any anything innate or anything genetic that might determine or influence human behavior. Uh, so if you believe that a person is largely, you know, tabula rasa, well, then you believe that there are no, pers there are no, no such thing as personality. Our behavior is determined by whatever it is that we're reacting to. Um, on the other hand, if you uh, have a, you know, if you behave that, if you believe that um, uh, genetic influences have uh, much more of a role, then you, you'll, you'll be more sympathetic to the general idea that mm -hmm. there is going to be. Uh, you know, personality. Now, the the current view, from what I understand, is that of course somewhere in between, it's a combination of the two. That that you know, there are there is such a thing as a personality. Personality traits tend to be somewhat stable, although they do change during developmental time. Uh, it's interesting that a lot of the a lot of even the better uh, personality tests uh, typically are applied to adults, and they run into trouble if you try to apply them too early on in in, in an individual's development. I mean, there are there are children version of them, but it, but it's known that the personality traits actually do change over time, um, uh, to some extent. You know, not necessarily radically, but to some extent. <laughs> anyway, the the whole point was sort of going back to the you know to the to the evidence and the theory. So we said that the Myers Briggs is bad on both counts. The five factor uh, tests, on the other hand, are, do significantly better in terms of empirical evidence. I mean, there is a number of studies that uh, sort of cross-validates these tests. Uh, what is that? What are they cross-validating, though? Well, for instance, they, first of all, you can use different ver different versions of the same tests and and see if you get similar results. But I'll I'll get to that in a se in a second. Oh, you can I also see. do it. Um, you can also do it cross-culturally, and there is some cross-cultural validation. Uh, to, to, to these tests, although so there are some interesting uh, differences. For instance, um, uh, uh, several Asian cultures don't seem to have all five personality traits, or at least not not all as developed as hmm. as the Caucasian sort of Western uh, samples do. But the, the yeah, it doesn't seem that it doesn't seem that damning to me, though, if a test is a good classification of personality traits in one culture, but not a good uh, classification in another. No, it's not that damning. Although it does tell you, then, then, then the environmental influence must be important, uh, because you know, as by environmental influence, in this case, I mean you know the cultural milieu, the cultural environment in which a person grows up, right? 
I see. So it makes the test um, less reliable as an indicator of like genetic, yes. of innate personality, Correct. but still reliable as a descriptor of the personalities that people end up with. Right. Now, there's still two, two problems that I, that, uh, as I understand it, with the, with the big five uh, tests. Uh, one of them is that there's no theory. These are atheoretical things. Um, uh, that's true also for the Myers-Briggs. That's true pretty much for almost any personality uh, 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 test. And in fact, it's true, I think, also for the IQ test. There is no theoretical basis for this thing. But this is... Is, um, is that bad, though? Well, it, if, you're, if you want to do... Isn't it just saying that here are some dimensions on which you can classify people? Yes. But if you want to do... I mean, that this goes back to some extent to the general discussion of what kind of science psychology is, right? Um, we, most people tend to think most people, and by most people I mean most philosophers of science and most scientists. I think um, <laughs> that's would, what people. Yeah, mean. and that's most people, as far as we're <laughs> concerned. Um, they, they would argue that a mature science is a theoretically based science, right? I mean, the, the, the quintessential example of a mature science, mature sciences are physics and chemistry, which are highly theoretically based. Yeah. Um, they're followed by things like biology. You know, biology became essentially a modern science after Darwin which means after it got a theoretical grounding of some sort, right? Uh, psychology. Sure, although I think psychology would probably resent your use of the Myers-Briggs as the thing by which to judge whether they're a real science or not. Um, well, I didn't say, notice that I didn't say real science. I, I think of psychology as, as a soft science. And I think the problem is not just the Myers-Briggs. I mean, if that, if that were the case, yes, this would be a, a sort of a silly objection. I think it actually applies m more broadly to psychology in general. I mean, you know, there, there's, there have been, of course, historically, historical attempts to ground psychology in a theoretical, in some kind of theoretical framework, the most mm -hmm. obvious one being Freud. Um, but pretty much all failed. And, you know, Freud, Freudianism failed, psychoanalysis in general, uh, behaviorism failed as well. Uh, now we're getting, you know, the latest attempt is essentially evolutionary psychology, which, as you know, I don't have a lot of sympathy for either. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, it, it, I think it's fair to say that uh, at the very least, psychology as a discipline is significantly behind other harder sciences. That's not, not to say that that's not because psychologists are, you know, less smart than physicists, it, I think it's actually much more to do with, with the nature of, of the discipline and the kind of phenomena that people study. Mm -hmm. But that's a whole different discussion. The, the point is, none of these tests, including the Big Five, seems to have theoretical grounding. Now, most philosophers of science and, and scientists, I think, would, would consider that a problem, not a fatal problem, because something can be useful even if it doesn't have theoretical grounding, but it, it is a problem that, that at some level needs to be addressed. Then the last question that remains as far as, you know, this, the other question that remains as far as these tests is concerned is, well, what about the empirical grounding? We've seen that the Myers-Briggs doesn't really have any. Uh, what about the Big Five? The Big Five, as I said, there are, there's a number of studies um, that, that, um, uh, that validate them, cross-validate them. But the fundamental interesting thing is there is how did they construct the test to begin with? How did they come up with five factors? Okay. And the right. word factor there gives you a clue. These tests were built originally using a very powerful, very uh, common, common uh, multivariate statistical analysis called factor analysis. Now, factor analysis is incidentally the same kind of thing that gave us the, um, uh, the idea of an underlying intelligence factor that is correlated with to all IQ tests. Okay? The idea that there's such a thing as a, as a general intelligence basically, which, of course, is very controversial. Yeah, I was hoping to talk about that. Yes, well, we'll but get to that in a minute. That. Yes, so, so let's finish about factor analysis. So factor analysis basically is 
Um, I've actually used it a lot when I was uh, a practicing biologist. It's, it's a very common uh, tool. Uh, and it essentially, it's one of the kinds of things, it's an exploratory analysis, um, although I should say for the listeners who are statistically inclined that, yes, there is, there is such a thing as a confirmatory factor analysis, but let's set that aside for a minute. It's largely an exploratory analysis. It's basically what you do when you have a large amount of data and you, don't, and you, want, you, want, you want to figure out if there's any patterns, any non-random patterns in the data. And you want to organize, let's say that you measure something like, you know, 20 different variables or 50 variables or 100 variables. Um, and, you know, you could plot, let's say, 100 variables by themselves or in, in, all together in, into sort of a 100-dimensional space. But, you know, good luck making, making any sense of that sort of stuff. So factor analysis, like principal, like, like principal component analysis, which is also related to it, is a way to simplify the problem. It reduces the dimensionality of the problem from the original number of variables to a small number of factors. These factors are found, are identified statistically by correlations between variables, essentially. So you reduce the number of original variables because several of them are going to be correlated and so what you do is you, um, the, the, the technique essentially is a multidimensional rotation in, in data, in the space identified by the data, defined by the data. And what that rotation does, what this mathematical rotation does, is it, it identifies positions in this multidimensional space that explain the majority of the variation in the data. So it's a way to simplify mm -hmm. large data sets. So is there a way to explain what that means like in this context where the, the well, factors we're talking about are personality traits. Well, like, would it be fair to say that the openness factor, that's one of the five, isn't it? Yes, openness? Yes, openness oh, to experience. Are? Anyway, mm -hmm. let's say it yeah. were. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, would it be fair to say that openness represents sort of a collapsed version of of many uh, characteristics that we, you could, in theory, have talked about separately, right. but because they're kind of clustered with each other, we collapse into this one thing we call openness? That's right. That's exactly okay. right. So, And the same goes for the other five factors. So the idea is that essentially you have these hundreds of variables that you can measure, and these are the variables in this case are actually the, the responses to individual questions, okay? So the typical question could, be, could include hundreds, sometimes several hundred uh, questions. And each one of those questions is a variable, essentially, the response uh, to, 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 that, to that question, to each question. And what you're trying to do is to figure out uh, if there are common factors that sort of summarize the information about all those responses. The idea is, mm. therefore, that empirically, it turns out, there's five of these factors. There's five major uh, directions in this multivariate space that sort of summarize pretty well the available data. And then mm. you interpret these factors... Uh, so you give them uh, names like openness to experience or conscientiousness or extroversion or whatever, based on which original questions, which original variables are highly correlated with each factor. Right? Mm. So, Although, yeah. I see. So this is another way that a personality test uh, could be wrong. It could not, like the factors it's measuring could not be very good uh, or very like significant um, that's right. Remember? Explainers of the data that's right. that we've got. That's Although right. I have to wonder, like it seems like there's almost an uh, arbitrarily large number of questions you could ask people or things you could measure about people, which you would then be able to do a factor analysis on. That's right. And like I'm sure pe there are questions like uh, how happy are you among strangers? Right. Um, but there are probably not questions about do you prefer sitting at a square table or a round table? <laughs> exactly. Um, and yeah. like there are probably many, many, many questions that we could have asked people that we didn't ask that if we had 
our factors would have come out different. Yes, and in fact, that is one of the objections in the in the technical literature uh, to these kinds of personality tests. That is, they they only measure uh, it, at the best they measure a subset of sort of of, of things that are relevant to human behavior. Um, now, the counterclaim, of course, is that yes, but these these tests have been actually uh, been done with you know a number of different ways, asking a number of different questions, and yet the most consistent result you get is is, is these you know uh, these five factors. Now that's okay, except for another crucial objection to the whole use of factor analysis. As I said, having used it, I'm actually familiar with the technique, and I know how subjective the interpretation is. <laughs> Uh, the number of can factor- you elaborate? Yeah, the number of factors that you identify um, is is you know it's a qualitative call. You have to 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 establish a, a um, sort of a more or less arbitrary line for stopping at the number of factors because from a mathematical perspective, the way the the technique actually works mathematically. From the mathematical perspective, the number of factors actually is exactly identical to it's the same number as the original variables except that then you lose a bunch of these factors in, the, in, in your conclusions because they tend to be statistically non-significant. You, 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 you simplify your system. So if you start with, let's say, 300 variables, you really have 300 factors there. And it, what you're trying to do is to identify the most important ones, the ones that explain mm-hmm. the most amount of variation in the data. But where do you stop exactly? It's controversial because you, can, you have to establish some kind of threshold of variation explained. And, of course, you can argue, well, why did you stop there as opposed to a little before and a little later? And sure enough, in the literature on the Big Five, some of the critics point out that other researchers have done similar studies and they found only two factors or three or ten or twenty. <laughs> and, you know, so there is quite a bit of variation, actually, in the number of factors yeah. that people have found. I remember thinking about this when I, I've been interested for a while in stories and storytelling and, like, the construction of a good story. And every now and then a book or an article will come out saying... There are really only X number of stories in the world, right? Um, and and that X varies wildly. Like there was one book that said there are twenty one different stories in the world, and the stories will have types like uh, uh, I don't know the quest um, or boy meets girl, boy loses girl, or right. I don't know the the fracturing of a family or something like that. And the author will show how all of these popular, famous myths and novels and short stories fall into one of these 21 categories. But you could narrow it down even more. In fact, sometimes the articles will say there are only three kinds of stories. Right. And then at its you know, simplest, there's only one kind of story. Uh, some person or group of people try to do something and they either succeed or fail. <laughs> exactly. You know? so, so it's really just about how fine-grained fine you want your distinctions Exactly. To be. By the way, I should qualify one thing that I said earlier that, it's, that um, the big personality, the big five uh, tests are atheoretical. That's true in their current incarnation, but they, they didn't start out that way. Um, really? Yeah, they started out as, as um, uh, following something that was called the lexical hypothesis. And the lexical hypothesis is the idea that, that essentially... Uh, people's personalities are encoded in the way we use language. And uh, interestingly, by the way, one of the first people who, who actually worked on this thing uh, and developed the first test was uh, Francis Galton, Darwin's cousin, who you, you'll find almost anywhere we're talking about statistics early on in the late 19th century and early 20th century, you, you find Galton's fingerprints. He was everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, so including, for instance, in, most famously in uh, the first studies on heritability. Mm-hmm. And um, right. now what, what the idea was, in fact, they, they, so the, the original researchers started out by simply putting together a bunch of uh, words describing personality taken from dictionaries. 
And uh, and the original, the early results in the 1930s were it's not a bad starting point. No, actually. it's not a bad starting point. Absolutely, um, but but you know the the original studies were looking at something like uh, uh, almost 18,000 words. Uh, and then they reduced them to about 4,500, and then they reduced them further, and they found an initial uh, uh, initial cluster of about 35 uh, major personality traits. You can see that the numbers here are all over the place. You know, they they, they vary all over the place, and then now somehow we reduced from the from the 35 original clusters down to five. But but that's as I said earlier, it's, it's controversial. Mm-hmm. So the interesting thing about the I, big five is that there is more. You know, there's more empirical evidence, certainly, for the use of the Big Five than there is for the use of the Briggs Myers. But that's, mm-hmm. you know, somewhat faint praise, shall we say? Yeah, I, I was wondering when I uh, d- took the Myers Briggs why these four dimensions were the ones that he thought important or they thought important enough to include, like extroversion, introversion. Okay, that seems somewhat fundamental, and I think it's the case that that's the only part of the Myers Briggs that predicts significant things in the rest of one's life, like job performance. But uh, the, the judging versus perceiving that, you know, at the end of the Myers-Briggs score, whether you get the J or the P, um, I don't know, judging represents whether you, you prefer your life to be more structured um, and decided or more flexible, um, like whether you like deadlines or not. Why is that one of the top four most important things to know about a person, yeah. you know? No, that, that's a good question. We should also mention another, there's, uh, there, there are three very popular tests that personality tests that are used. Two, two we've talked already to, to, to a large extent. The third one is the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. And that one is used uh, particularly in, in top secret security clearances for in United States governmental mm-hmm. agencies. So it's and actually what does it very important. Well, it's supposed also to measure personality traits, although it uses a different system from both the Briggs Myers and the Big Five, which right there, of course, raises an interesting question. You know, why are, why are there so many different ways of measuring personality if personality is supposed to be such a fundamental aspect of what we do? But in, more interestingly, the, the Minnesota um, inventory um, went through several different sort of iterations. And um, apparently, again, this is one, one for which there is a, a certain amount of empirical evidence in terms of cross-validation and all that. But the way it started out was interesting. It was a very small sample uh, that was developed. Uh, the, the original test uh, was developed uh, in the United States, of course. And uh, originally it was based on only, uh, let me see. Uh, I have the actual number. No, I don't have the actual number, but a very small number of individuals that were essentially young, white, and married people from rural Minnesota. Okay. From, well, who else is there? Yeah, really? exactly. <laughs> that's right. So, um, so that's the, and sure enough, and no, no big surprise there, when they tried to uh, apply the same test to, oh, I don't know, women or, you know, people from different ethnic minorities or backgrounds. Uh, the results were not exactly very encouraging. Now, they have since re-standardized the test. They've um, they amplified the, the the sample, you know, so it's it's gotten better. But of course, that you know, again, that shows you that that there is quite a bit more subjectivity, I think, to this thing, and quite a bit more dependency on the sample, on the specific samples and procedures uh, than it may than it may uh, seem at, at first uh, at first glance. And again, mm-hmm. these are important tests because these are actually have real consequences in people's lives in terms of hiring and you know education placement and all that sort of stuff. So, yep, makes sense. Now we want to talk briefly uh, about the IQ thing. Yeah, I yeah we do, uh, especially about um, the the G factor. Yes. So you started to explain what 
the G factor is, um, yeah. but more formally, um, what would be the best way to define it formally? I and mean, it's it's sort of a construct representing allegedly representing general intelligence. Right. And right? How would you describe it? Well, and that's exactly what it's supposed to represent, and it is arrived at by uh, doing a principal factor analysis, the same one that we talked about for the for the big five uh, personality traits, a principal factor analysis on all, uh, on a variety of IQ tests. So you f- you first have you know, people have developed a number of different IQ tests, and you can administer this, th- those tests to the same group of people, and then you crunch the data into a factor analysis that tries to see if there is any correlation, basically, in, in the way in which people respond to one test as opposed to the way they way respond to another test. So if I give you, you know, uh, two tests, two IQ tests, do, are you going to score high on both, on both, or are you going to score low on both? Are you going to score, uh, or, or are the scores in fact uncorrelated? And right. the idea, so the idea being, if there's some sort of uh, like combination, linear combination of scores that people get on these different tests, um, that that represents their general intelligence right. that's causing them to do well on all these different tests. That's right. But you can see how you know there's 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 immediate problems with that sort of interpretation, right? First of all. Um, all you may be measuring is a similarity between the tests, as opposed right. to right, <laughs> as opposed to whatever native intelligence might actually mean. Um, that's that's one thing. The other thing is remember it's factor analysis, so uh, we're still talking about the, uh, the additional factors. There's a number of additional factors that are ignored. There's you know there's a secondary factor, a tertiary factor, and so on and so forth. And these are simply going to be ignored because the original researchers that were interested in IQ already had in mind this idea that it must be a single factor, a single general intelligence. But if you abandon that idea, then, uh, then all of a sudden you, you can start taking a look at the second factor, the third factor, the fourth factor, and then you run into the same problem that we discussed a minute ago, which is, well, where are you going to stop? How many different types of intelligence are there? Um, right. Yeah. So what I had wanted to ask you is, I've been so confused about why so many smart people think seem to think that this thing we're measuring that we call G represents a real thing in the sense of being having some instantiation in the brain uh, other than just uh, like a linear combination of these other things that the tests have measured. Like it seems almost like um, reifying, yes, uh, which means uh, falsely uh, assuming that there's some real thing That's right, exactly. uh, behind the thing you're looking at. Exactly. Right. It's not a very good description. That, no, it's actually like, pretty good. Well, let me, give, let me give an example to make it clearer. Yep. Um, if you took five tests and got different scores in all of them, you could take the average of your scores, and that's just a very simple mathematical construct. And so it would be false reification to say that, ah, here is, I've discovered what my average intelligence is. You haven't discovered anything beyond what those five separate tests individually told you. That's right. You've just, you know recombined the data and given it a new name. That's right. Now, as I said, you know, if there were, a, you know, the, the power of the, of the factor analysis is supposed to be that if, in fact, you have good reasons to believe that there is one, two, three, or four, or five underlying factors, right, um, then that is one way you can quantify that thing. But, but, but now you're moving, we're moving from a purely empirical approach, which is what most of these, these tests are based on, to a theoretical um, base for for the uh, approach to begin with, which is the very thing that is missing. I mean, there is no particular reason to think that there is a general intelligence factor other than the fact that IQ tests tend to, according to certain types of analysis, cluster along, along the lines of you know one one linear combination. By the way, you mentioned several times the word linear. 
that's another one of the major criticisms of these kinds of mm-hmm. techniques in general. Mm-hmm. That is, well, who who the heck said that these things are actual linear combinations? You know, that the, the interesting biology. It's easier. Right. It's, it's just easier to do. <laughs> exactly. It is easier to do. But of course, there is there are by the way multivariate tests that that take into account nonlinearity. One of them is called multidimensional scaling. Uh, and it's it's very sophisticated uh, uh, multivariate analysis that actually takes into account the possibility that um, uh, that the underlying factors uh, uh, that group the variation in a certain number of, of uh, responses are actually combined in a nonlinear way. But that opens an, a really interesting large number of possibilities because there's a bunch there's a bunch of different ways in which things can be nonlinear can be combined nonlinearly. Mm-hmm. And so it makes it makes the whole situation much more complicated. Incidentally, there is evidence that some of the dimensions of the Big Five, uh, going back to one of the, the, the early tests that we discussed, are actually, uh, those factors are not actually orthogonal to each other, meaning that they're not mathematically independent. Exactly, they're not mathematically independent. And now that's, you know... Is that a bad or good? Well, it's, it's um, from, a, from a purely descriptive uh, perspective, it's neither bad nor good, you know, that's just the way it is. But from a point of view of making claims about personality uh, uh, factors, then it's a bad thing because it means that all of a sudden, you know, two or three of the personality uh, dimensions may actually be correlated with each other. So that it's not it's not independent it's not an independent thing of whether you are an extrovert and you know you score high on something else uh, in uh, in the in the Big Five. You know, so it, there could be, for instance, um, a correlation between openness to experience and extroversion. Now, that would be mm-hmm. empirically interesting, but what that does is it undermines the idea that now there are five independent traits. Because if, the, if two of them, let's say, are correlated, then one could say, well, then why not collapse those into one underlying factor and call in the openness extraversion dimension? You know, that, mm-hmm. And that reopens the discussion of uh, subjectively how far you want to go with grouping or splitting these things. Mm-hmm. I, we have a few minutes left. I want to talk a little bit more about what it is that IQ tests are actually measuring. Um, so <laughs> Good question. I know that IQ tests are correlated reasonably strongly with various things like performance in school and yep. salary and so on. Yep. Um, but that alone doesn't seem like very good evidence that IQ tests are measuring some property of your mind, which is then in turn causing all of those good outcomes. That's right. It seems, I know there's a lot of research on this and I've only read some of it, but so far it doesn't seem clear to me from what I've read that uh, we can rule out explanations like uh, people who are good at focusing and are patient do well on IQ tests. And those are also the same people who at 10 earn a lot of money. Yeah, no, that, that's right. So there's, there's the usual problem with correlation and causation. Um, and uh, particularly when it comes to such a highly high level uh, human cognitive traits like like intelligence and all its aspects, um, it's it's very difficult to tell which way the direction of of, of the you know causal arrow actually goes. Uh, for mm-hmm. one thing, some of these things can be self fulfilling prophecies because the interesting story the interesting story about the IQ test is that Alfred Binet, when when he originally came up with the tests, uh, meant it for a socially progressive purpose. Uh, he basically wanted to identify mm-hmm. uh, children who were falling behind in elementary school, so very early on, so that they could be uh, helped and brought back up to the level of the rest of the class. So it was a way uh, to, and and he didn't think there was anything innate about this thing. It was just a matter of, you know, for whatever reason, people fall behind on certain things, and we can identify them early on and bring them back up to speed, right? Ironically, Mm -hmm. the IQ tests 
broadly speaking, uh, have been used exactly for the opposite purpose. They've been used for classifying people and you know showing that this race or that gender or this ethnic group or whatever it is, it's inherently inferior to another, usually to us. Um, and there's no point in trying to that's right. uh, <laughs> exactly. throw more resources at educating or helping the group because, see, the test has shown yeah. that it's just an innate trait of theirs. Exactly. The, the famous, it is really ironically it is opposite ironic. it is to the very, original meaning of the test. Exactly. And, you know, the famous or infamous, depending on who you ask, Bell Curve book that came out a number of years ago, uh, that was the fundamental message that, you know, it doesn't matter what you try to do in terms of social policies or education because, you know, if, if people are, you know, deficient in intelligence as a, as a native thing, there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, now, we could have yeah. a whole different conversation here, of course, about heritability and the pit, pitfalls of that kind of analysis. But as far as the IQ tests are concerned, um, one needs to be really careful about realizing what we're measuring. Uh, the, the, the IQ tests, of course, have changed over time. And they have, um, interestingly, there, there's some very amusing examples of that, that tell you how easily it is to get an, an, an IQ test wrong. I don't know if there is a way to get it right, but there certainly are many, many ways of getting it wrong. For instance, a classic example that comes from uh, a book by Stephen Jay Gould from several years ago is um, a question in, uh, in, uh, in an IQ test that was administered uh, early on by immigration authorities in the United States. And the question had basically was in the form of a, a picture of a tennis uh, court. And the tennis court was missing the net. And you had, the mm-hmm. question was, you know, what is missing from this picture? Well, if you've never seen a tennis court, right. <laughs> you have no idea. But that means that, that it has absolutely nothing to do with how intelligent wow. you are. Regardless the of- implication there was that knowledge of tennis courts was an innate trait <laughs> exactly. that this test was measuring. Precisely. Some babies are just born with a better understanding of what tennis courts Precisely. look like. Now, of course, the, the modern versions have, have taken care of those kinds of obvious faults. And they, they, people have actually tried to produce tests that tend to be a little more cross-culturally stable, a little more, you know, less dependent on specific knowledge of of, uh, sort of cultural a cultural environment but still there's there's always that possibility yeah. working there's still the problem that socioeconomic status and other environmental factors um are highly correlated with iq tests and so or scores on iq tests um and as countries tend to develop their I- average iq score goes up and so it seems really problematic for if your goal is trying to infer innate differences from differences in scores on iq tests because surely you would expect there to be some difference in average IQ score between two groups with different socioeconomic status or other right. environmental factors uh, being different. Right. And the question of how big that difference is and how big that expected difference compares to the observed difference in average IQ scores you see, uh, it's just very unclear to me how you would uh, confidently say that the observed difference is bigger or smaller than what you would have expected just from environmental factors. Yeah, not only that, but there is also pretty clear evidence that IQ uh, scores have actually gone up uh, right, for a that's populations what, yeah. over countries the last, have developed. You know, yeah, exactly. It's called the Flynn effect, yes. right? And and that clearly it's not the result. It can't be the result of of genetic changes. That's just too short of a of a time period for for that to be the case. So right. Well, we are just over time and have uh, <laughs> just barely managed to avoid wading into the highly explosive uh, field of IQ and cultural differences. So let's stop while we're ahead and wrap up this section of the podcast and move on to the Rationally Speaking Picks.
I'd like to take this moment to remind our listeners that if you're a fan of the Rationally Speaking podcast, you'll definitely enjoy this year's Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism, which will be held in New York, New York, uh, the weekend of April 5th through 7th, 2013. Uh, go to nexus.org now to get your tickets. They're on sale. In addition to Massimo and I, you'll also find a lineup of great speakers, including the SGU, Simon Singh, Michael Shermer, and our keynote speaker, physicist Leonard Mladenov, author of The Drunkard's Walk. Nexus.org, that's N-E-C-S-S dot org. Go get your tickets now. Welcome back. Every episode, Julie and I pick a couple of our favorite books, movies, websites, or whatever tickles our rational fancy. Let's start, as usual, with Julia's pick. Thanks, Massimo. My pick is an organization or a website, depending on how you measure things. Um, it's an organization I'm a big fan of called the Center for Effective Altruism. Um, there's a, a cluster of related organizations within that umbrella, but they're all focused on how to do the most good possible with whatever your time, um, your money, uh, etc. So they're, they're focused to some degree on cost-benefit analyses of different charities or different ways of helping the world um, and really trying to measure what kind of outcomes you get for a given investment of money. Um, but they're also focused on questions about what careers you can go into to have the greatest marginal positive impact on the world. And so there's some interesting philosophical questions there that they deal with. And I'll, most of the founders are philosophers. Hmm. Well, um, they're based out of Oxford. I like it right there. Um, so they deal with questions like, um, what kind of baseline should you be measuring your contribution to relative to? Like if you're a doctor and you're saving lives, um, do you measure your positive impact in terms of the number of lives you've saved? Or do you measure it in terms of the number of lives you've saved relative to the number of lives that would have been saved by the person who would have been the doctor if you weren't? <laughs> anyway, I'm going to post a link to their uh, site and especially to the blog uh, that they run, which I think is a particularly thoughtful blog and a great example of philosophy being used for, to have a positive impact on the world. Sounds good. So my pick, on the other hand, it's a, it's about a book, but it's not the book because I haven't read it yet. It's the book review, <laughs> which obviously uh, picked my my interest and so so much so that I'm going to actually read the book. Um, the book is called "How to Talk About Books You Haven't Read." And you're kidding? No, I, that is the title. You're, and this is so meta. My brain just exploded. Yeah, that's right, and it is by a, a University of Paris literature professor, uh, Pierre Bayard. And uh, the, the book review is by Maria Popova, who is the curator of the Brain Pickings uh, website. And the basic idea from what I understand, of course, I guess if I followed the, the suggestion of the book itself, I shouldn't really need necessarily to read the book in order to talk about it, which is what I'm doing. Um, but, but the idea apparently is more serious and a little less provocative than the title uh, would, would imply. Uh, the guy isn't really, this is not a, 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 a how-to guide on how to cheat on your uh, social conversations at a party, at a cocktail party. Uh, what it is, is, you know, there's a real problem with a huge amount of books, and not to mention other kinds of writings, you know, articles, blogs, and so on. But, but there's a huge amount of books that is produced every year. And, of course, there's no way any sensible human being is going to be able to read more than a fraction of these books. Not only are the ones that are coming out, but also, of course, if you count, you know, any, anything from the classics on. Nonetheless, the author of, of this book, Bayard, claims that, you know, we need some kind of map to navigate the cultural territory that is 
or the cultural landscape that is actually made uh, or uh, shaped by by these books. And so what you say, this, this is a quote from the, from the book, um, non-reading is not just the absence of reading, it is a genuine activity, one that consists of adopting a stance in relation to the immense tide of books that protects you from drowning. On that basis, it deserves to be defended and even taught. So that was <laughs> stimulating enough for me to, to convince me to get the book and see what, what actually the substance is about. And if it turns out to be, uh, you know, substantive, maybe we can have the author on the, on the podcast in a, in a future episode. That'd be great. I would love to discuss other ways to reframe my own laziness or <laughs> exactly. negligence as a positive stance for something. <laughs> like, you know, I didn't go to the gym, not because I'm lazy, but because I'm taking a stand against society's unfair beauty standards. Absolutely. And I'm sure <laughs> you can find some people who agree with you. <laughs> all right. We are all out of time. So this concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollack and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening. <laughs>